My name is Jamie Piles. I joined Samaritan in December of 1996. We were homeschooling our kids and we were already thinking outside the world's box, if you will. And I saw a little tiny classified ad about this new kind of idea I'd never heard of before. My first reaction was, that's the kind of thing that we would do, isn't it? And so I finally called the number, talked to them, and the more I asked them questions, the more I liked their answers. on the Fight Laugh Feast Network. What do you get when you mix Presbyterians with a Catholic talking about statism? A huge fight. You're about you're about to find out. Oh. Pastor Toby, <laughs> Chuck Knox, on the water boy. It's good to be with you guys. Hey, we have ourselves an exciting summer coming up here at Cross Politic, and we want you to join us on the ride. First, we're no longer calling it the Fight, Laugh, Feast Club. It's now called The Pub. Yeah. Second, we're launching a new line of content focused on entertainment. Some yes. of this content includes a new TV show called This America, uh, a cooking show, a hunting show, a hunting show. We're getting there. We're getting there. I, we I don't want to overpromise under deliver uh, on that. Okay. <laughs> Maybe a hunting <laughs> yeah, show. Yeah, there you go. That's better. That's better. Live streaming of our conferences, of course, is still included in the package and and past conference talks, all bundled within our new polished Fight Laugh Feast app, which Lord willing will be dropping on July first. Yeah. July first is going to be the uh, <laughs> okay. um, likely. It, it is going to be the new date. Okay. What happened in June? <laughs> well, because uh, it was going to be mean, June. It was 1st. June. Yeah, uh, no, okay. that's what I was wondering if that was a typo. Uh, no, it's it's July first. Uh, yeah. There's some technical issues that we're, we're ironing out. Plus, you yeah. got to go through like the whole submission process on iTunes, and they can take a while. So yeah. it'll oh, probably be from, before then. But again, Apple. I feel probably, like I overpromised and underdeliver on that June first date. So I'm yeah. just you know, yeah, yeah, maybe it's making a safe date. Probably no. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. Is the federal government? You know, is it like are they involved? Are they designing are they involved? Their app? I don't know. Statism uh, yeah, maybe is. Yeah. So, anyways, we move the launch date back uh, so we can provide you with even more content upon its release. But that shouldn't stop you for sign from signing up today. Head on over to fightlaughfeast.com and join the pub today. You can find that at fightlaughfeast.com. We're very grateful to have with us on the show today uh, William T. Kavanaugh, or as we know him, Bill. Yeah. He's a yeah. professor of Catholic studies and director of the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology at DePaul University. His degrees are from the University of Notre Dame, Cambridge, and Duke. He's the author of a number of books with a new one coming out later this year from Oxford University Press Ooh. entitled The Uses of Idolatry. He's married and has three sons. Bill, thank you for joining us on Cross Politic. Oh, my pleasure. So, um, first off, I, I'm, I really want to hear about your new book, Uses of Idolatry. What's it about? Well, it's about idolatry. Yeah. <laughs> they, they actually wanted to give it a kind of more interesting title, but the Oxford University Press made me go with something uh, boring and, and something that will show up in search engines. Yeah. But the idea is um, it's in some ways a continuation or a sequel to a book I did called The Myth of Religious Violence about 10 years ago, in which I argued that there's no uh, point for thinking that uh, there's this thing called religion, which is inherently more violent than other things that are labeled as secular, that people kill for all sorts of things, uh, that they worship as if they were gods, uh, or, you know, worship religiously. And so there wasn't much theology in that book, so I've come back to the question of idolatry, 
I've been telling people for years that that book was a book about idolatry. And so I came back and wrote another book about idolatry and this time <laughs> used the, um, uh, you know, used the Bible and, um, and other theologians to analyze this question of idolatry. Does, does uh, Psalm 115 pop up in, in your analysis? You know, Psalm 115 talks about you, you become like what you worship. Um, it, it actually does. Yeah. Um, interestingly, uh, Karl Marx makes a similar point uh, when he talks about uh, the fetishism of commodities that we things and the commodities come alive to us, but the workers that actually make them are kind of drained of life. And this is a point that was made long before uh, Marx by the psalmist, basically saying that, you know, we invest uh um animation we kind of uh things come to life these these things that we make out of wood and stone come to life while uh, the 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 life gets drained out of the the people that worship them and so um i've got a whole chapter in the new book on consumerism and another chapter on nationalism uh, where i talk about these kind of dynamics wait wait you consider nationalism some form of idolatry i do indeed so then, so then you love so Christian nationalism. He's not right a now. Christian nationalist. <laughs> <laughs> so I am definitely not a Christian nationalist. But I, um, I don't think the problem is Christianity. In some ways, I think the problem is nationalism. Uh-huh. That um, so the problem is not just Christian nationalism. The pros- problem is Christians being nationalists, uh, and there's a, a, a long. So part of what I do in in that chapter is show there's a long uh, tradition in scholarship dating from the early 20th century talking about nationalism as a religion, yeah. And um, and I think that's uh, that's probably right. And a lot of scholars arguing that it's it's the kind of it's it's what happens when Christianity fades in the West mm. is people's uh, loyalty, people's ultimate loyalty gets transferred to the nation state. So do you have a problem with? The terminology as it's historically defined, the, the, the word nationalism as it is historically defined, or um, do you actually have a problem with um, some sort of Christian, massive Christian influence that influences our politics and our laws? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't think that there's anything particularly uh, pernicious about Christians influencing our politics and our laws i don't think that's any scarier than you know anything else than than secular ideologies influencing our our laws and so on i don't think that the church ought to be in charge i don't want to return to the days of christendom where um you know the pope has an army um but i don't think that the the basic problem is christian influence i think a lot of people are scared of christian nationalism because of the christianity and that's not where i'm coming from i'm I, i'm scared of christian nationalism because of the nationalism right the, the tendency to kind of make the nation state into an idol like like all idols there there's something good so an idol seems to me is taking something that god has made and in, in investing in it as you said or perverting tr- it tr- or, or yeah. trying to get from it yeah. something that god didn't intend us to get out of it uh, something that either he intended to give us directly uh, or through some other means and if that being the case uh, if idolatry is sort of a, a twisting or a perverting of some good thing that god made um, is there a good thing 
called a nation um, that um, uh, that would exist if you know if if the gospel permeates a culture, uh, and if, even if we grant that it, it m- might be very very different that, than the modern nation state. Um, is there is there such a thing as as a nation that is a good thing, a virtuous thing? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I'm trying to do in this book is give a sympathetic read of idolatry and say something like, you know, what says in um, Acts 17, where he's talking to the Athenians and he's distressed by their idolatry, but he says this is a sign that you're groping for God and may still find God. And so um, I want to give a, a kind of sympathetic read to idolatry in that way. And we're, we're all idolaters in, in one way or another. And oftentimes it is just a perversion of something that's good. So I think, you know, the kind of devotion to something bigger and higher than, uh, than oneself and the willingness to sacrifice oneself for, uh, for one's brothers and sisters, you know, the one's community and so on. Um, and so I, uh, all of that, I think, is good. It gets perverted when it gets associated with violence, and it gets perverted when um, when the nation becomes uh, something which it's not, which is a god, the kind of provider of security, uh, and so on. I, th- I think one of the things that that I'm arguing in this chapter on nationalism is that um, there's a lot of ways in which nationalism is kind of parasitic on more local forms of belonging on kinship and family and community and it gets kind of blown up into this large uh sort of um abstract you know uh, a, a nation of 300 and some million people stretched out across a continent and the only way to get people's uh loyalty under those kinds of circumstances in, in is to make nationalism into religion and is to make the nation state into an object uh, that requires this kind of lethal loyalty. And that's when it becomes dangerous. So Bill, what's the, what's the, like uh, you were starting to hit on it, but what's the kind of practical political ramifications for a nation going full, full into idolatry? Yeah, I mean the question of violence, of course, is one of the one of the keys to this, right? I mean, y- you can tell what people believe by seeing what they're willing to kill for, and to die for, and so um, oftentimes you find that um, that there's an insistence uh, when it becomes idolatrous. There's an insistence that you just have to do whatever the nation requires of you, and these kinds of sacrifices are required. And uh, and then the church kind of gives up its own um, uh, ability to discern when violence might be justified and and when it's not. This is something that was in the Catholic world. This is something we saw in the Iraq War, where you've got the Pope and the bishops in the lead up to the Iraq War saying this is not a, a just war. Um, and then you've got other Catholics saying, don't listen to the Pope. He's, it's not none of his business. You know, you just need to do whatever the president uh, decides, and it's your duty to to go ahead and do that. And so, part of the part of the problem is just the removal of the uh, discernment process from the church to to the state. Uh, I think you've quoted um, Alistair McIntyre's uh, famous line about being asked to die for a modern nation state is like being asked to die for a telephone company. I think you, I think you've. 
quoted that. I've quoted that too many times. Yeah, yeah. Many, many times, uh, like Verizon. Maybe AT and T. Maybe you need to update it to our internet company. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. <laughs> but but uh, my question is is so that's kind of what you're getting at a little bit here. But has that increased or decreased since COVID? Mm-hmm. Uh, has what increased or decreased since COVID? I guess that kind of um, uh, demand lockstep, uh, loyalty allegiance to, you know, to an, uh, to a, a state that delivers its goods about as well as a telephone company. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, gosh, that's a really interesting question. I'm not sure. I mean, it's hard to separate out the, the rise of, and, uh, and hopefully fall of COVID with the uh, rise of Christian nationalism, right? I mean, there there does seem to be a sense, uh, I think, amongst a lot of Christians that the country is falling apart and the COVID pandemic is a kind of uh, isolation that we've fallen into. And the response to that needs to be this kind of renewed uh, passion uh, for the nation state. Um, I guess I'm, uh, I'm not sure that's a good idea. Yeah. No, I guess I'm, I'm thinking, I hear that. And I see that side of, of maybe the way my question could be interpreted. What I'm, what I'm thinking about, I guess, is um, the way, I mean, you, you talk in various places about um, the idol of state being that which um, grants us security and oh, safety, okay, yeah. safety and health and that kind of thing. And I, and it seems to me like, we saw that on sort of a grand scale um, rather than the local communities, family in particular, churches in particular, uh, local communities banding together to decide what was best for themselves and, and care for themselves. We have these, you know, sort of nationwide top down lockdowns, you know, um, vaccine mandates, you know, this kind of thing. Um where again, I think we were in many ways susceptible to that because we look to the state as the one who guarantees our safety and health and life. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now I see where the question was going. Um, Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think there was a lot of government uh, overreach in the early, I mean, we didn't know what we were dealing with, but I think the, the basic instinct to, um, uh, to see if the government can save us certainly kicked in uh, under COVID and it wasn't necessarily a, a good thing. Very good. You look, uh, you look like you wanted to ask something, Knox. I was just waiting. I'm, I'm still stuck at the Christian nationalism thing. Oh, you, oh, you want to go back <laughs> there? Yeah, I kind of want to go back there. Um, you know, so there's a, you, you spoke on this just a moment ago talking about how I think uh, answering Toby's question was actually kind of getting towards a question I want to go to. Um, you said that a lot of Christians are looking around and they're seeing that, you know, you see Target, you see Bud Light, you see all these people that are kind of going super trans and the the element of Christianity and the culture seems to be depleted. And everyone is seeing that and they're like, man, we need to do something. And the only two options that they're seeing is we go full trans or we go Christian nationalism. Right. Um, the first part of my question kind of is, is there what do you see as a way in the middle? Because. There doesn't seem to be any other option. It's it's Christian nationalism full on or it's you're going trans. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, You only uh, have two choices. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) 
I'm not sure those are the only two choices. And I'm, yeah, um, I mean, this this stuff about sexual ethics, I just think is really difficult, and everybody needs to kind of stay, take a step back and and take a breather on this. Sexual ethics is not my um, it, not my area, but I have a tendency to think that both sides are kind of hyperventilating at, at this point. Really? And, um, yeah. And I have a, I, I, I kind of feel like um, this is a new phenomenon and we need to, to kind of wait and uh, wait and see how things work out. I'm, I'm happy to accommodate somebody if they want these different pronouns or, or whatever. Um, uh, I don't think that necessarily means that uh, I should be compelled to use my, you know, declare my pronouns whenever I, uh, whenever I'm, you know, presenting myself in public or something like that. So, um, oh, that's surprising, because you just wrote a book on idolatry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and you seem to be really comfortable with the sexual, sexual idolatry. The sexual idolatry that's coming out of the left. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is not what I'm really prepared to, to talk about, but um, uh, I, I'm I'm not an ideologue on, on either side of that fight. I I, I want to see um, what's about this new phenomenon. I know people that have had uh, you know experiences with gender dysphoria, and this is a new thing to me. And um, and I want to see uh, what we can do to accommodate people and and accompany them on their journey. Um, but I don't uh, want to go um, to the opposite extreme either, and uh, and insist that everybody uh, um, change uh, in order to make accommodations. I mean, in some ways, I I think of this on analogy with the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, we oh, put in wow. wheelchair ramps. Uh, we didn't take away all stairs. Uh, do, can, do, can, uh, can I, I just want to press just a little more because this actually goes to my question. I'm asking about this wide range between the two Christian nationalism and the new way America's going. And I'm asking kind of for what the, the standard is. And then so it, the sexual side of you, you kind of say you don't want to go to either a ditch, but then it's as if we don't have a standard on how God made humans. Yeah. Um, again, it, it, sexuality is not my is not my area. And, I, and I'm not going to go to the mat uh, on this and say, uh, I, I mean, I think it's it's true uh, that for the most part, uh, people are um, identify with uh, with with the the biological sex that they're that they're born with. Um, there's an increasing number of people who don't, and so what I want to do is take a step back and say, okay, what's the Christian way to respond to this new phenomenon? Bill, maybe ask the question this way: What what are your when you think of American idolatry? What's your biggest, um, you know, maybe top three forms of idolatry that concern you? Um, the the two t- test cases that I took in the book are nationalism 
and consumer culture. Um, but I think there's a lot of other kind of candidates that would make for interesting studies. Um, racism, uh, technology, celebrity. Um, there's a lot, a lot of different ways that you can go um, in this um, if you're looking at different kinds of idolatry. But the two that I chose and the two that I know something about and have studied for years are uh, nationalism and consumer culture. And that encompasses, I think, a lot of um, a lot of other areas uh, as well. The, what I mean by the economy is something much larger than just what we do with our money, but um, but it's a whole kind of culture uh, that has an effect on on lots of other different things. Do, um, Bill, do you think? Um, uh, man, I'm, I want to go in like three different directions yeah, now, yeah, and I'm, yeah. I'm I'm trying to try to narrow it down, but I guess just maybe just a brief comment and then I'll actually ask you a different question. Um, the, the comment is just simply, um, um, it seems like something, I mean, I would, I think it would be, it would be really cool given your interest in idolatry um, to see you study actually the, um, how often sexual perversion is part of idolatry. That's right. Um, I mean, you know, paganism going way back has always included, um, sodomy and cult prostitution and pedophilia and transvestitism and 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 you know ancient forms of of uh transgenderism um those are those are very common elements in idolatry i mean when you have pagan shrines um those are things that commonly show up and not accidentally uh, not it, 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 that's not an accident at all. Anyways, that's just a comment, and maybe your next book can be on <laughs> the uh, sexual fetishes of idolatry. Um, but my, I guess my my question is whether or not um, uh, you have um, uh, given uh, much thought to. I want to go back to the you mentioned the myth of religious violence um, book. You've you've got that uh, as one of your, your titles. Um, why has that myth? been so successful you think in the modern west why why have we assumed that secularism is necessary for peace because it's the secularists that have power right i mean it's a it's an ideology um what i try to trace the history that i try to trace in the in the book is the kind of transfer of power from the church to the nation state uh in the in the modern era and the victors get to tell the story, right? And so um, the last chapter of that book is, is about the uses to which the myth is put. Uh, domestically, one of the uses that it's put to is uh, marginalizing, uh, especially Christians, but increasingly also Jews and Muslims in the United States um, domestically. You know, the, the myth of religious violence is invoked in all of the decisions banning school prayer and banning aid to uh, Christian schools and so on. Uh, and the way it gets used in foreign policy is uh, to underwrite uh, kind of colonial uh, adventures in the Middle East and so on, right? That, you know, you can't reason with Muslims, you can only bomb them. Uh, and so, um, so it's a very useful myth, but it's a myth that... Um, uh, that's ultimately untrue. Go ahead. Were you going to say something? Yeah, I, I just want to follow up on that. What about, what do you think about the, I, I have no idea if I've read anything by you about the founding of America. I mean, I saw like that, 
genealogy you just described makes a little bit better sense to me in Europe, um, pre-modern Europe and the development of the nation state in Europe. But what about America, where it seems like the vast majority of those who were in power were self-conscious Christians uh, of some stripe? Um, what about here? Why, why, why have we as Americans been so susceptible uh, to that myth? Well, I think the idea that the founding fathers were all devout Christians is um, is problematic to begin with. You know, I mean, you think of some of the most influential ones like Thomas Jefferson with his scissors and his Bible, right? Um, literally cutting out all of the parts of the gospel where Jesus does something miraculous because he doesn't believe and not really Christians in, in, in much of a significant sense at all. But, I mean, one of the, the things that people don't understand, I think, is that America, in the period of the Revolutionary War, was much less churched, um, and it, it really, America becomes a churched society um, starting in the 1820s with the, the Great Awakening and so on. Um, so I, I think the idea that this was all, uh, that, you know, it was founded as a Christian country, and then it's all been downhill since then, is not uh, is not true. And one of the things that that helps us realize is that there's ups and downs, and it's not um, it's not all one one direction. You know, used to be good, now it's lousy, and then you get into all kinds of dangerous uh, nostalgia. Um, so I don't think so. There's always been a, a kind of dynamic between uh, Christianity and more Enlightenment influenced ideas in the United States. And so I, it's struggle that America was not one thing. And then suddenly in the you know last 20 years, it all went to hell or something like that. There's always been this kind of struggle uh, between these two different uh, different visions of, of the country and the culture. But you got to look at the laws that we were making then. They seem a little more Christian back then in the colonies, right? <laughs> I mean, no, really. I mean, there are, you've certainly got, you know, in Massachusetts, for example, where you've got, you know, an established church, and most of the colonies had established churches, um, uh, you know, with the exception of, you know, Roger Williams and, and in some ways, uh, uh, Pennsylvania. Um, but as far as people actually going to church on Sundays, America was actually much less churched in the period of the revolutionary period of the revolution than they were uh, in the middle of the as a matter of historical fact. So you're saying you just broke up. I'm just clarifying what you said. Um, America was less churched in the revolutionary war, but it was, it was more churched in the in the 1820s in the Second Great Awakening is what you were saying. Right. That's when that's when uh, the, the the churchedness of America uh, becomes much more pronounced over the course of the 19th century. But I guess I think what Knox was asking, it was it, so maybe it's maybe it is historically fact that there was a lot less church attendance. Um, mm -hmm. But he was asking about the actual laws on the books. So like the colonies themselves um, you know, seem to be extremely Christian ha have, you know, their, their, their colonial charters and then their state constitutions. Um, yes. And, and then the laws that are actually on the books seem far more Christian than what we have on the books today. Um, yeah, probably. Yeah. In, in some, in some ways, 
problematically. Sure. You know, um, you know the, the legitimation of slavery or the, you know, the law and the books in Massachusetts that Catholics couldn't own land and things like that, you know, um, up until the, uh, the constitution, uh, you don't have a, a guarantee of religious freedom. And so that's, uh, that can be problematic. I, I, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways it it was a more Christian uh, era than it is today. Um, but I just want to be sure that we are, are wary of a certain kind of a nostalgia that sure. sees this golden era in the past. Trust sure. me, I'm not having that problem. I'm going to tell you right now. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm not but, having that problem. I get the nostalgia effect. I'm with you. Bill, Bill, so maybe, maybe talk positively about what would you think would be a good uh, political solution? Do you think that the that's Christian... Ju- that's just what an idolater would say, Gabe. <laughs> There's no political solutions. <laughs> that, that's true. I mean, what, what do you think would make... For a, how about this? What would, you, what would make you think... Make for a good nation? Um, is, is there... Should there be one dominating uh, religion? Uh, you know, um, you know what, do you, what do you think would make for a good nation? Yeah, I mean, I'm a Christian, and I believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord of history. And so um, I think that if I had to, uh, you know, design my ideal world, then um, we would all be followers uh, of Jesus. You know, I mean, in some ways, I just think that uh, Christianity is true. Right. Um, what I don't want to do is impose that on anybody through coercion. Uh, that's what you know happened in the period of Christendom, and I don't think it was good for the gospel, and I don't think it was good for uh, the world um, ultimately either. As a, as a Protestant, I mean, we've forgiven the Catholic Church for the 1500s, 1600s. <laughs> so. Hey, Bill. Hey, hey, hold, hold on. I got to read one more ad, and then we'll sign off here. Um, we'll, we'll take all the forgiveness we can get. <laughs> for, for, before we have a new religious war on our hands. Um, how, how are you paying for your health care and how's it working out? If it's working perfectly, great. But if not, listen closely because I have a solution for you. That's actually a biblical solution. Samaritan Ministries is a community of Christians who pay one another's medical bills. Here's how it works. When a medical need arises, you choose the provider that's right for you and have a say in the treatment you receive, even if it's a non-conventional approach. Your medical bills are then shared with fellow members, fellow Christians, and your need is covered in prayer. It's affordable. You can join anytime. You can even join today. Learn more today at SamaritanMinistries.org slash CrossPolitik. Hey, Bill, where can people find out about you, read your articles, and buy your new book? Um, well, um, I would say, so the book is going to be available from Oxford University Press, as was the Myth of Religious Violence uh, book. So um, I have a critique of the whole idea of Amazon, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm asking people not to buy it on Amazon, but go directly to the publishers. Um, but I'm, uh, I'm all over. I, I got a whole bunch of videos on uh, YouTube and so on, so it's not not hard to find me. You can just Google W William T. Kavanaugh. Awesome, very yeah. good. There, appreciate you joining Thanks us, for Bill. The show, Bill.
If you're single, get married. If you're married, have you some kids. And if you have kids, go baptize them. Until tomorrow, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Go fight, laugh, and feast. This is Cross Politics. It is the duty of the free man to resist tyranny at every turn. Every man will either watch his freedom stripped away or take action to protect what he loves. Introducing the A3, the newest revolutionary body armor from Armored Republic. The A3 is the new standard for lightweight multi-hit body armor. A3 plates are incredibly light at 4.6 pounds. The patented design captures fragmentation while remaining multi-hit capable. The A3 will stop up to M80 ball, yet comes in at only 0.7 inches thick. The A3 is the thinnest NIJ.06 compliant or certified composite standalone plate that includes the drop test. The A3 is the first of its kind, patent pending, that combines an alloy strike face with polyethylene backing, revolutionizing body armor technology by providing strength and durability while remaining sleek and maneuverable. The A3 is the new standard in lightweight body armor. The fight against tyranny just got stronger. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow. Through the Spirit, God's Word changes lives. It cuts us to the heart and reshapes us. As you strive to read and study scripture, having a good set of tools can help. From setting reminders for a great reading plan to word studies and commentaries that shed light on difficult passages to listening on the go, the Olive Tree Bible app can help you dig into the word wherever you are. Olive Tree Bible app. Read, study, listen, anywhere.